CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From Bonnie London Town, this is Obscure Season 4. In American Tragedy, I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman Esquire, returned from the city of Angels, Los Angeles, where I have spent the previous week. I was, uh, I was called forth to Hollywood, California to participate in a television program which secured a SAG waiver, no scab I. This is an unscripted show whose name I don't even know. I did seven episodes of it. I don't think I ever even learned the show's name, which uh, I guess has something to do with the sort of slapdash, slapdash nature of the production. It is a show created by Kevin Hart's production company, and it's sort of a combination of uh, like America's Funniest Home Videos and Weekend Update and uh, let's say Talk Soup, uh, sort of like that. It's a clip show, but you know, with with uh, comedians commenting on it and jokes, and it, but it's sort of like it has sort of like a Daily Show feel. I don't, I don't know how, quite how to describe it. I mean, it's 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 self evident when you see it. There's nothing particularly thoughtful about it. And I don't mean that disparagingly. I mean, it's like an easy concept. That's what I mean when I say it's not thoughtful. It's just an easy kind of concept. So I showed up there and did a bunch of episodes and met Kevin Hart for the first time. Seems like a nice fella. And then just returned to Bonnie London Town yesterday, taking the overnight up across the U.S. and over Canada and Greenland and Across the Atlantic, and one of the things that I've learned when you when you do that flight is uh, those overnight flights up far. If you go far enough north, the sun never sets when you do it in the summertime, anyway. So there's never any any nighttime proper. So in a way, in a way, it's actually an easier way to fly than the traditional overnight where it gets all all dark because 
you sort of feel like you, 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 you just you don't quite feel like it was ever nighttime. So you don't feel quite as tired. At least I didn't. So when I got back to London late morning, Greenwich Mean Time, I wasn't nearly as exhausted as I thought I would be. I slept for a little while, took a couple hour nap in the afternoon, and then drifted off early last night around 9 30, 10 o'clock at night. Just couldn't keep the eyes open any longer. And that was a good way to, to get reacclimated because now I'm back and it's, uh, you know, it's in the afternoon and it feels like it's the proper afternoon time. You know, I don't feel particularly disoriented or jet lagged or any of that nonsense. And it's uh, good, good to be back here in Bonnie London town where the temperature is 75 or so and comfortable as opposed to, uh, I was, we were shooting in the valley there and LA and it was, I think in the shade, it was about 140, 150 Celsius. It's warm is what I'm saying. It was warm folks. And, uh, you know, just returned, just returned and, uh, happy to be back already looking ahead to Savannah where I will be spending a few days when I leave London before heading out to Denver, Colorado to perform with the state. Speaking of Denver, Colorado, as we mentioned last week's episode, Clyde Griffiths is uh, is begging off. He doesn't want to go with the family, the Griffiths clan, on to Denver. They're talking about setting up a new mission out there, and Clyde's like, why do I have to go? I'm 16 years old. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a soda clerk assistant. I've got a promising career path ahead of me. All that I want, all that I need is right here in Kansas City. Incidentally, I don't know if I mentioned this in the last podcast or not. I don't recall, but we went to see a production of Oklahoma here in London town. The Rodgers and Hammerstein, Oklahoma, which I'd never seen before. Didn't really know much about it. Just knew there was a fella named Curly in it. For some reason, it always, it always stuck with me that there's a fella named Curly in Oklahoma. Anyway, they got a they got a whole song about Kansas City there in Oklahoma. Everything's up to date in Kansas City is, is how that song goes. They've gone about as far as they can go. But in in this uh, in this particular production, the actors singing it said they they gone about as fur as they could go fur instead of far i guess that's how they were instructed to sing it with their dialect coach anyway it's a terrible production of oklahoma if you want to see it absolutely awful so the uh, they're going as they're going there to uh, to denver and clyde's like i don't want to go you know i got everything i need right here don't want to do it i don't want to go and experience more penury and misery with the larger Griffiths clan, minus Hester known as Esta, I'm trying to make my way in this world, and I can't be shackled by my folks no more. And and uh, his parents, he's brought this up. He's he's brought it up to them, you know. And and they're like, "What are you talking about? Once they were away, I'm quoting now the paragraph from which we last left off. Where where would he live? With whom?" What sort of influence would enter his life, etc., etc., etc.? It was something to think about. And quote, that's where we left it off last time. So let's pick it up again, why don't we? Chapter 4 in American Tragedy. 
but spurred by this imminence of Denver, which now daily seemed to be drawing nearer, and the fact that not uh, and the fact that not long after this, Mr. Sieberling, owing to his too obvious gallantries in connection with the fair sex, lost his place in the drugstore, and Clyde came by a new and bony and chill superior who did not seem to want him as an assistant. He decided to quit, not at once, but rather to see on such errands as took him out of the store if he could not find something else. Incidentally, in so doing, looking here and there, he one day thought he would speak to the manager of the fountain, which was connected with the leading drug store in the principal hotel of the city, the latter a great 12-story affair. 12 stories. They sing about this in Oklahoma. They've got buildings four stories tall. Actually, you know what? Let me just look up the lyrics here. So everything's up to date in Kansas City. Uh, I'm going to crank up the old research machine because they, they do talk about a building. You know, they've gone about as far as they can go. They went, so everything's up to date in Kansas City. They've gone about as far as they can go. They went and built a skyscraper seven stories high, about as high as a building ought to grow. Well, they now built one 12 stories anyway in Kansas City. And in the, and, and probably on the ground floor right there, one of the nicest hotels, they got themselves the finest soda fountain anywhere out in the West. And young Clyde Griffiths got it into his head. Hey, maybe I can get a job there. Man, wouldn't that be something? Its windows were always so heavily curtained. The main entrance, he had never ventured to look beyond that, was a splendiferous combination of a glass and iron awning coupled with a marble corridor lined with palms. Often he had passed here, wondering with boyish curiosity what the nature of the life of such a place might be. Before its doors, so many taxis and automobiles were always in waiting. Today, being driven by the necessity of doing something for himself, he entered the drugstore, which occupied the principal corner, facing 14th Street at Baltimore. I don't know if you can hear that persistent whining sound in the background. It's somebody doing some kind of uh, edging or lawn care or something. It's an irritant to me. It sounds like a mosquito buzzing in my ear. I hope it's not particularly noticeable to you, dear listener. Oh, man, that really is annoying. Here, hold, hold on a second, folks. What I'm going to do is I'm going to close the window here in London Town. We've got these fancy window contraptions. They go up and they go down, so the windows can be open or closed. Everything's up to date in London City. Hold on. I'm, I'm walking over the window. Let's see if it makes a difference. I don't know if you can hear the clatter. A lot of clatter going on here as I navigate the screens and the windows. And... Ugh. There might have been some tolerable improvement, I don't know, but back to the book. Today, being driven by the necessity of doing something for himself, he entered the drugstore, which occupied the principal corner, facing 14th Street at Baltimore. 
and finding a girl cashier in a small glass cage near the door, asked of her who was in charge of the soda fountain. Interested by his tentative and uncertain manner, as well as his deep and rather appealing eyes. Uh-oh. And instinctively judging that he was looking for something to do, she observed, why Mr. Secor there, the manager of the store? She nodded in the direction of a short, meticulously dressed man of about 35, who was, an arranging, who was arranging an especial display of toilet novelties on the top of a glass case. I imagine toilet novelties probably meant something very different in 1925 than it does today. I mean, it means almost nothing today. The phrase toilet novelties calls to mind, I don't know, maybe one of those fancy Japanese toilets that scrubs your butthole for you, or something of the kinky variety, but I, I, don't, I don't think that's what it means there. I think it means like perfumes and such. Uh, Clyde approached him, and still being very dubious as to how one, how one went about getting anything in life and finding him engrossed in what he was doing, stood first on one foot and then on the other, until at last, sensing someone was hovering about for something, the man turned. Well he queried. You don't happen to need a soda fountain helper, do you? Clyde cast at him a glance that said as plain as anything could. If you have any such place, I wish you would give, give it to me. I need it. No, 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 replied this individual who was blonde and vigorous and by nature a little irritable and contentious. He was about to turn away, but seeing a flicker of disappointment and depression pass over Clyde's face, he turned and added, Ever work in a place like this before? No place as fine as this, no, sir, replied Clyde, rather fancifully moved by all that was about him. I'm working now down at Mr. Klinkle's store at 7th and Brooklyn, but it isn't anything like this one, and I'd like to get something better if I could. Hmm. Huh went on his interviewer, rather pleased by the innocent tribute to the superiority of his store. Well, that's reasonable enough, but there isn't anything here right now that I could offer you. We don't make many changes. But if you'd like to be a bellboy, I can tell you where you might get a place. They're looking for an extra boy in the hotel inside, inside there right now. Captain of the boys was telling me he was in need of one. I should think that would be a, as good as helping about a soda fountain any day. I don't know why I'm stumbling so much today. Might be jet-lagged after all. Not accustomed as I am to uh, being back here on Greenwich Mean Time. Then seeing Clyde's face suddenly brighten, he added, But you mustn't say that I sent you because I don't know you. Just ask for Mr. Squires inside there under the stairs, and he can tell you all about it. Sure, the the uh, the fella doesn't want to, Mr. Secor there doesn't want to put his own reputation on the line for this young kid, you know? Why would he put his own head on the chopping block on behalf of this no-good-nick who just strolls into his soda fountain looking for work like that? He wouldn't. Unless the kid does well, then he'll probably take all the credit in the world and probably ask for a kickback. That's just the way they do things in Kansas City. 
At the mere mention of work in connection with so imposing an institution as the Green Davidson and the possibility of his getting it, Clyde first stared, felt himself tremble the least bit with excitement, then thanking his advisor for his kindness, went direct to a green marble doorway which opened from the rear of this drugstore into the lobby of the hotel. Once through it, he beheld a lobby the like of which for all his years, but because of the timorous poverty that had restrained him from exploring such a world, was more arresting quite than anything he had seen before. It was all so lavish. Under his feet was a checkered black and white marble floor. Above him, a coppered and stained and gilded ceiling. And supporting this, a veritable forest of black marble columns as highly polished as the floor, glassy smooth. And between the columns, which ranged away toward three separate entrances, one right, one left, and one directly forward toward Dalrymple Avenue. Dal, Dalrymple? Let's go with Dalrymple Avenue. Were lamps, statuary, rugs, palms, chairs, divans, tete-a-tetes, a prodigal display. Prodigal? Prodigal. Prodigal. The prodigal son, yeah. Prodigal display. Tete-a-tetes. What I imagine that is, and I could be wrong, I'm only, I'm, I'm, I'm only uh, speculating here. You ever see those curvy couches where, you know, they kind of curve in sort of an S shape? And then if you sit towards in the middle there, you end up facing the other person. I'm going to call that a tete-a-tete. I don't know if that's what a tete-a-tete is, but that's what I'm calling it. In short, it was compact of all that gauche luxury of appointment, which Gauche, not gauche. I, I I really am tired. It's making it's 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 becoming apparent to me that though I was saying that I am not jet lagged, in fact, it seems to me that I must be because my brain is in something of a fug, which, as someone once sarcastically remarked, was intended to supply exclusiveness to the masses. Indeed, for an essential hotel in a great and successful American commercial city, it was almost too luxurious. Its rooms and halls and lobbies and restaurants were entirely too richly furnished, without the saving grace of either simplicity or necessity. We've all seen those places before, right? I mean, anything sort of Trump-branded comes to mind, those kind of Rococo palaces of the nouveau riche. Those places that seem to insist that if you just pile expensive items one on top another, it will confer some gravitas to the institution, when in fact it generally tends to do the opposite. Even so, if you're to go into one of those hotels today, you know, those ones, if, if, if they still exist, and, we've, and most, you know, Midwestern cities, I feel like, still have them at least one still in existence, where you walk in from any of the three entrances, you know, as described, and uh, generally you'll ascend some stairs and find yourself standing in some grand hall. Uh, there'll be the reception desk on one end and colonnades 
surrounding you and and it, and it actually has settled into uh it's patinaed its its way into exactly what it was trying to be when it was first built it feels luxurious and it feels sort of old world and charming if it's been well kept up there'll be a there'll be a fancy bar you know on one end and a grand piano being tickled by some septuagenarian. There'll be frowsy doyens lounging upon tete-a-tetes, sipping sidecars and such. Bellmen in their anachronistic uniforms, hustling hither and thither. You've seen these places, dark wood everywhere, you know. I love them. I love those old, old hotels. But So I can understand Clyde's excitement. You know, imagine putting on one of those monkey suits and getting to work there day after day. Kid of 16 years old, you know, fetching bags, getting handed two bits as a tip. I can imagine how exciting that would be as Clyde stood. Oh, we'll take a little break. I'll oh, take a little break before we get to Clyde standing there. And, uh, yeah, back in a moment, here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Back on Obscure, Clyde Griffiths staring at opulence arrayed before him. He is in no position to judge the quality of the opulence as Teddy Dreiser is, who he's already offered his own withering opinion upon it. But Clyde is overawed at his surroundings. Back to the book. As Clyde stood 
gazing about the lobby, he saw a large company of people, some women and children, but principally men, as he could see, either walking or standing about and talking or idling in the chairs side by side or alone. And in heavily draped and richly furnished alcoves, where were writing tables, newspaper files, a telegraph office, a haberdasher's shop, and a florist's stand, were other groups. There was a convention of dentists in the city. Oh, you hear that? You hear that European siren going by? There was a convention of dentists in the city, not a few of whom, with their wives and children, were gathered here. But to Clyde, who was not aware of this, nor of the methods and meanings of conventions, this was the ordinary, everyday appearance of this hotel. He gazed about in awe and amazement. Then, remembering the name of Squires, he began to look for him in his office under the stairs. To his right was a grand, double-winged, black-and-white staircase, which swung in two separate flights and with wide, generous curves from the main floor to the one above. And between these great flights was evidently the office of the hotel, for there were many clerks there. But behind the nearest flight, and close to the wall through which he had come, was a tall desk, at which stood a young man of about his own age in a maroon uniform bright with many brass buttons, and on his head was a small round pillbox cap which was cocked jauntily over one ear. He was busy making entries with a lead pencil in a book which lay open before him. Various other boys about his own age and uniformed as he was were seated upon a long bench near him or were to be seen darting here and there, sometimes returning to this one with a slip of paper or a key or note of some kind and then seating themselves upon the bench to await another call, apparently, which seemed to come swiftly enough. A telephone upon the small desk at which stood the uniformed youth was almost constantly buzzing, and after ascertaining what was wanted, this youth struck a small bell before him, or called front, to which the first boy on the bench responded. Once called, they went hurrying up one or the other stairs, or toward one of the several entrances or elevators, and almost invariably were seen to be escorting individuals whose bags and suitcases and overcoats and golf sticks they carried. There were others who disappeared and returned, carrying drinks on trays or some package or other which they were taking to one of the rooms above. Plainly, this was the work that he should be called upon to do, assuming that he would be so fortunate as to connect himself with such an institution as this. As good a description of the duties of the bellboy as one is likely to read. Is it not? I mean, you know, having never really discerned what bellboys do, myself, never really occurred to me to think about what a teenage bellboy in the 1920s, how he would be called upon to perform his duties, how he would be seated upon a bench, you know, in my mind, I'm picturing like a line of jockeys just sitting there waiting to be sprung, to dash about. 
like a thoroughbred, to be, to be called and whipped into shape, racing around the hotel, helping guests, fetching golf sticks, bringing drinks and such. And you can only imagine to Clyde's eye what all this looked like, how elegant, how, how polished, how divine. Entry into a world that hitherto-for he has only dreamed. Not even. He hasn't even been able to conjure up a dream like this because he's never seen anything like it. But this is the promise of capitalism, is it not? Walk through these doors, young man, and behold these magisterial sights. Behold the marble, the brass, the finer things in life, the haberdashery, the florist. And you, in your place among them assured, if you can just get that opportunity, just get that chance, and all of this and more shall be yours. You too could walk among the conventioneers, the dentists assembled there in this grand palace. I mean, I'm getting excited just thinking about it. Will Clyde get the job? Let's keep reading and find out. And it was all so brisk and enlivening that he wished that he might be so fortunate as to secure a position here. But would he be? And where was Mr. Squires? He approached the youth at the small desk. Do you know where I'm, I will find Mr. Squires, he asked. Well, here he comes now, replied the youth, looking up and examining Clyde with keen gray eyes. Clyde gazed in the direction indicated and saw approaching a brisk and dapper and decidedly sophisticated-looking person of perhaps 29 or 30 years of age. He was so very slender, keen, hatchet-faced, and well-dressed that Clyde was not only impressed, but overawed at once. A very shrewd and cunning-looking person. His nose was so long and thin, his eyes so sharp, his lips thin and chin pointed. Let's just, let's just linger for a moment, shall we, upon this description of Mr. Squires. Why, sh why should he be so hatchet-faced as this? That's my question. Why is he painted in these with these sharp planes, and the, 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 every, uh, every bone apparently serrated, honed to a fine edge. Why should it be like this? Did you see that tall, gray-haired man with the scotch plaid shawl who went through here just now? He paused to say to his assistant at the desk. The assistant nodded. Well, they tell me that's the Earl of Landray. He just came in this morning with 14 trunks and four servants. Can you beat it? He's somebody in Scotland. That isn't the name he travels under, though, I hear. He's registered at Mr. Blunt. Can you beat that English stuff? They can certainly lay on the class, eh? You said it, replied his assistant deferentially. You know, there is a, there's something kind of, uh, I don't know what the word is, refreshing, maybe? Bracing, maybe? About the difference Again, I'll note between the British books we've read and and here this this first American novel, second if you count Wuthering Heights, which of course I do, but their manner of speaking is certainly different, more wide open. 
You know, they, 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 they wear it more on their sleeve, don't they? The way they express themselves. These young, brash Americans. We can see Mr. Squires is impressed by the Earl of Landre. I don't know how you pronounce it. L-A-N-D-R-E-I-L. It sounds Frenchy to me, but apparently it's Scotch. And he says so. I'm impressed and I say so. And his assistant agrees, deferentially. He turned for the first time, glimpsing Clyde, but paying no attention to him. His assistant came to Clyde's aid. That young fellow there is waiting to see you, he explained. You want to see me? queried the captain of the bellhops, turning to Clyde and observing his none-too-good clothes, at the same time making a comprehensive study of him. The gentleman in the drugstore began Clyde, who did not quite like the looks of the man before him, but was determined to present himself as agreeably as possible, was saying, that is, he said that I might ask you if there was any chance here for me as a bellboy. I'm working now at Clinkle's Drugstore at 7th and Brooklyn as a helper, but I'd like to get out of that, and he said you might, well, that is, he thought you had a place open now. Clyde was so flustered and disturbed by the cool, examining eyes of the man before him that he could scarcely get his breath properly and swallowed hard. For the first time in his life, it occurred to him that if he wanted to get on, he ought to insinuate himself into the good graces of people, do or say something that would make them like him. So now he contrived an eager... I gotta sneeze. Oh, man. (coughs) That was a proper British sneeze right there. So now he contrived an eager, ingratiating smile, which he bestowed on Mr. Squires and added, If you'd like to give me a chance, I'd try very hard and I'd be very willing. I, I I think we're learning something here, folks. I think we're getting a little foreshadowing. At Clyde, making his way in the world for the first time in his life, it occurred to him that he has to put on something in order to get people to like him. And so what does he do? He puts on an eager, ingratiating smile. And we've all met folks, have we not? with that ingratiating smile that almost never serves its purpose. One can easily distinguish the ingratiating smile from the kind of natural smile, the obsequious from the merely polite. And uh, we, we hope, do we not, that Clyde is not teaching himself to be obsequious. The man before him merely looked at him coldly, but being the soul of craft and self-acquisitiveness in a petty way, and rather liking anybody who had the skill and the will to be diplomatic, he now put aside an impulse to shake his head negatively and observed, but you haven't had any training in this work. No, sir, but couldn't I pick it up pretty quick if I tried hard? Well, let me see observed the head of the bellhop, scratching his head dubiously. I haven't any time to talk to you now. Come around Monday afternoon. I'll see you then. He turned on his heel and walked away. Clyde, left alone in this fashion, 
and not knowing just what it meant, stared, wondering. Was it really true that he'd been invited to come back on Monday? Could it be possible that he turned and hurried out, thrilling from head to toe? The idea! He had asked this man for a place in the very finest hotel in Kansas City, and he had asked him to come back and see him on Monday. Gee, what would that mean? Could it be possible that he would be admitted to such a grand world as this, and that so speedily? Could it really be? End of chapter four. And I guess we might as well leave it off there. Pick up a new chapter next week. But Clyde is beginning to see uh, a future shimmer into being. The first hazy outline of what might come to pass for him. Just there, just, just at the horizon line. He is about to be admitted into the finest hotel in Kansas City. And they've gone about as far as they can go out there in Kansas City. And here is Clyde about to walk up those fine steps, ascend maybe the entire 12 stories of that hotel, and look out, and what will he see? Not just Kansas City arrayed before him, but the entire Middle West, and beyond that, the entire nation of the United States of America, out there, just waiting for him. He's passed this first crucial test He's asked, asked for employment, asked to be given a chance, just a chance. And you'll see, Mr. Squires, you'll see what I can do. I mean, it's a Horatio Alger story right there. He's got some bootstraps on him. He's just waiting to pull himself up. He's, you know, he's, he's started pulling. Of course, he needs a helping hand. That's the thing about bootstraps. You know, that's the irony. The fact of the matter is, if you're standing on bootstraps, you can't pull yourself up, no matter how hard you try. It's just not possible. You need somebody to give you a, to give you a hand, and that helping hand may be provided by young Mr. Squires there, with all the sharp angles of his face delineating. What's it delineating exactly? I guess just how sharp-edged capitalism can be. Because I think what we're learning here is this book is going to be a social critique. And I'm fine with that. I like myself a social critique. I've read my Upton Sinclair. I know what it's all about, folks. You think I'm just some, some rube? Unwilling to critique the social? Heck no. But you'll have to wait till next week before you get any more of my social critique, let alone Theodore Dreiser's. Because, folks, we've gone about as far as we can go this week here on Obscure. So, we'll reassemble again. We'll start a whole new chapter. We'll critique the social. We're not going to sing any more Rodgers and Hammerstein. Hammerstein, Hammerstein. Again, I don't know. And I'm not going to look it up because we're at the end of the episode. 
But uh, yeah, let's do it again next week on another peppy episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and the great Robin Lynn. Our theme song is by Craig Wedren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support. So please, go to patreon.com slash Black. Sign up. There's all kinds of fun stuff. There's goodies. You could join the book club where we get together. We talk about the book that we're reading. Uh, and it's just a fun community. So, you know, head on over to patreon.com slash Black. And I will see you next time.